Want to be a part of the conversation? Then let us know on the TNT Radio interactive live chat room at tntradio.live. Lighting the fuse for freedom. Today's news talk, TNT Radio. This is Mind Medicine on today's news talk, TNT Radio. Welcome to the Mind Medicine program. I'm Charles Coves, Australasia's passion provocateur and your host, as I have been for almost two years of the Mind Medicine program that we bring to you in association with Mind Medicine Australia. Special time, new time now, instead of on Saturdays, I'm now on Sunday night, 7 p.m. Melbourne time, 6 p.m. Gold Coast time. And I reckon this works out at 8 a.m. UK time. So my guest today is Victor Purton, the that optimism man, the chief optimism officer, but I will introduce you to him later. This show is all about how and why mind matters and how to keep yours in great shape. Ideas to provoke new ways about thinking about your life and life generally. Insights into mental health issues and health issues of all descriptions. And to that end, we're delighted that we are bringing this show to you in association with Mind Medicine Australia, founded by Tanya De Jong AM and Peter Hunt AM. And its website is mindmedicineaustralia.org. And it was established four and a half years ago to legalize psychedelic drugs, particularly MDMA and psilocybin. And the good news is that that has now been approved in Australia when prescribed by psychiatrists for particular for particular problems. Now, psychedelic drugs can have a wonderful, wonderful impact compared to pharmaceutical drugs that people have suffered uh, over the years without appreciable improvements. Psychedelic drugs can make an enormous difference. And with the mental health challenges that we have, although Victor Purton is the man who helps solve those who's helped solve those um, mental health challenges with optimism. Mind Medicine Australia is doing great work, and we urge you to bring it to the attention of your friends, of your family who are suffering from mental health issues. Now, we talk about health in all aspects, and my definition of health, regular viewers and listeners would know that it's based on the Hungarian word for health of egészség, which means... And the Hungarian language is very precise. And the and the, the word, the Hungarian word for health literally means wholeness, being whole. So that my definition of health is health is the unique, optimal balance for each one of us of mental, physical, and spiritual elements. And for each one of us, it's different. So there's a crucial, crucial element in your health. We talk about passion and its impact on your life and your health. And as a passion provocateur, I've spent the last 30 years provoking people, inspiring them, motivating them, educating them with my books, my websites, on what are, how life changes when you are pursuing your passion. And so this show each week is designed to remind you, do not live your life by sacrificing your passion for this illusion of security. If you are pursuing your passion, two things happen. Number one, you have massive amounts of energy. Number two, your mental health challenges reduce. And why is that? Because, again, this is the balance between mental, physical, and spiritual. So so if you are coming from your soul, your spirit, your heart, where passion comes from, the 
domination of your mind, which is where fear comes from, which is where mental health challenges come from, reduces. So you have this nice balance mentally, physically. And then, of course, I always urge you to look after yourself physically. So that's what we talk about. And then we talk about things that are happening in the world. And before I introduce my guest today, Victor Purton, I want to make a couple of comments on the editorial. I have said often that the that the Victorian government that we have today and the premier that we had from 2014 in this state, Vic Daniel Andrews, is the worst premier in Victoria's history since it was founded in 1851. I stand by that. Victor can make a comment on that if he likes in due course, but I consider Daniel Andrews to have caused such harm to this planet, to this state, he must be held to account. But in the news this week, the Auditor General of Victoria's account says the debt is going to go to $256 billion and the government has no plan to work out how to repay. Well, you know what happens if at the end of the day you don't repay government debt. It has a significant impact on society. But I whole I demand of this Victorian government that it wake up to itself, that it stops spending money like drunken sailors. There are certain people, certain businesses that do very well out of government spending, but it's a significant, significant problem. $256 billion, our debt per capita in this state is far greater than any other state in Australia. Um, the anti-Semitism, we're going to talk about that with Victor, but the... Australian newspaper yesterday had a number of major articles on this problem of anti-Semitism. And, you know, it's, it is a very, you know, there are co wise commentators saying what a price that this could have on our democracy. It's a, it's a challenge to our society and there's some interesting trouble times. So we'll talk about that with Victor. I was pleased to hear Chris Smith talking about the cost of the transition to renewables. I have been involved in renewable energy since 1992. And I think renewable energy is wonderful in certain applications, but there is no credible, there is no possible way that this transition can happen from baseload coal power to the renewables on the timetable and the cost predicted by the federal government. It's a major problem. And the sales of electric vehicles is nowhere near what it needs to be. It will collapse because people are now realising how you run an electric vehicle is with batteries that require lithium, and you then look at the slave labour that is used in countries around the world to produce this lithium for these batteries. And the question that doesn't get answered is what happens to these batteries when we're finished with them? So I love the planet. I love looking after the planet. But doing crazy things in the name of some ideological proposition that cannot be done without harming vast numbers of people. It'll never hurt the elites, but without harming vast numbers of people like you and me must be taken into account. And I urge all of us to take an interest in the actual numbers. Don't leave this to government. The last thing I want to say, oh, yes, the, the Australian PGA golf happened today. Now, I like watching golf because golf is a wonderful metaphor for life. And there are so many. You can win a golf tournament by the tiniest of margins and you can lose it. 
And it's remarkable in life how tiny little things can make a big difference. I urge you in your own life, hey, what's the tiny things you can change so that you live life on your terms? And to that end, in the health space, I do a lot of work in health with various groups around the world each week, and I urge you not to rely solely on the Australian hospital system. You must have alternatives in place. Uh, I won't go into that at the moment, but I urge you do not simply rely on the medical profession and big pharmaceutical companies. You will not get the care that you need unless you have a major car accident or you're burnt in a fire. Then the doctors and pharmaceutical drugs can help you enormously. But other than that, if you want to get healthier, Relying on pharmaceutical drugs and doctors is, in my view, based on my 50-plus years of experience, a flawed decision. So please consider that. I want you to be as healthy as possible. So um, spread the TNT news. Thank you for being with us. You can see we're now going to video, which is very exciting. It means I have to wear my red jacket. Red is the colour of passion. And spread the news on TNT. I urge you, choose to be happy. It's a choice. Don't wait for the absence of problems and choose to be happy as you fight for freedom alongside TNT Radio and me, where this is a, a politically correct free zone where our guests can say precisely what they want. You can contact me by email, charles at coves.com, and you can also check out my Charles Coves show weekly podcast up to episode 176 today when I was talking about the transgender movement. And I've read some horror stories about that. We might talk about that with Victor as well. So let's introduce Victor Purton. Now, Victor Purton is that optimism man. He is the chief executive officer of the Centre for Optimism based here in Melbourne, but he's a global citizen. He's a former minister of the Victorian government when it was on the conservative side of politics. He is an advisor to many leaders, involved with many global leaders, has a deep understanding of geopolitical issues. He's been my guest before. I love having him, have, love having him as my guest, Victor Purton. Welcome to the Mind Medicine Programme. Oh, Charles, it is such a delight to be with you. If people can see us on screen, you've got your bright red jacket for passion. I've got my bright orange jacket for optimism and, um, you know, the blending of colours. You'll like this, Charles. Today I was wearing a Samoan shirt in the supermarket, you know, orange and yellow and the patterns, <laughs> and the security guard stopped me and he said, I love your shirt. <laughs> so um, colour and vibrancy bring joy to people, Charles, and that's what you do every day. And I hope when we finish this program today, people understand that passion and optimism are the two best mind medicines. Well, beautifully said, Victor. Well, let's dive right into the stuff I've been dealing with on the editorial, and you and I have spoken about it during the week of the challenges of what's happening in Israel and Gaza and everywhere else around the world. How, with all the geopolitical challenges that we have, how do people stay optimistic? Give us your perspective. First of all, give us your perspective on what's happening, but also how you maintain your own optimism. Yeah, look, there's a mixture of things. Um, number one, optimism is a state of mind, not a state of the world. 
You know, the, the oldest definition of optimism comes from an English mystic, Mother Julian of Norwich, who lived through the Black Plague. And she famously said, you know, in the middle of the Black Plague, whole towns are dying, 30% of the English population died, similarly in Europe. Um, she said, all shall be well, all shall be well, all manner of thing shall be well. And had she lived 650 years, and it was her 650th birthday last month, um, Oxford University even commissioned a new choral piece to her. She could have written the Harvard Medical School definition of optimism, which is a belief that good things will happen and that things will work out in the end. And, and watching the news today, you know, I mean, there's been this intense fighting, you know, horrific scenes on, on both sides of the border. But today we saw the joy of families reunited, you know, of of, of children, of grandmothers and the like being liberated as hostages or prisoners. And, and in life, that's what happens. I mean, yours and my parents went through World War Two. You know, my both my parents were refugees. Two of my grandparents were refugees. My grandfather executed. My grandmother was sent to the Gulag. And yet they told all those stories with a hint of humour. You know, yes. it was... It was, it was something funny about the dictators or it was something funny about even the near-death experiences. So, so a lot of it, you know, you, you need to look at and understand that in the course of human history, yeah, there's been a lot of war, um, mm -hmm. but always there's been a peace and always society has advanced. And, you know, you, you look at us, you know, we're, we're both men, you know, over the age of 50, had we lived 100 years ago, we would have been old men. You know, the lifespan of men and women have increased so much. Um, you know, one in five women died in childbirth in 1900. One in yes. five children died before the age of five. So you were talking about health earlier. You know, if we get cancer these days or heart disease, right, the chances are with good medical care, with, with a good state of mind, optimism, a sense of purpose, we will get better. So statistically, and, and Oxford has got a wonderful project called The World in Data. Um, oh, that's one, Ox Oxford University? Yeah, The World in Data. It's a wonderful project. Um, there's a, a wonderful book that I'd recommend to people called Factfulness by a Swedish doctor called Hans Rosling. On, on almost every measure of human existence, we live better than the generation before and, and many times better than the generations um, of our ancestors 50 and 100 years ago. So, you know, how do we stay optimistic? Number one, it is our state of mind. You know, it's our life and it's what we can do with our life. Uh, but number two, it's understanding that the human condition is getting better. And part of that is our spreading the news. You know, what you do with your radio show and bringing guests on who are doing interesting, innovative things that make the world better and freer. Um, and every one of your listeners can do the same thing, you know, whether they've got access to the conventional media or whether they're on LinkedIn or Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. Once a week, share a story. It could be your story. It could be a story of a friend or someone you admire. But make sure that the good news is getting through because there's a heck of a lot of good news in the world. And, and you know, Charles, I mean, as you said, you've been working on, on renewable energy. 
you know, mm -hmm. for over 30 years. We know that it's all becoming more efficient. You know, we know that we're going to be able to overcome climate change and, and, and make the world thrive in, in 50 and 100 years. But, you know, it's got to be sensibly done. It's got to be rationally done. And it's always got to be done with that lens of human freedom, human dignity, human respect and human control. Beautifully said, Victor. We've got to we've got to go to a break because I want after the break to explore your background, how you got into politics, but then how you segued to set up the Centre for Optimism. I'm with Victor Purton, that optimism guy. I'm Charles Coves, your host, and we'll be back after these this break. You should hear what Patrick Henningsen's talking about. So all the Israelis are really escalating air attacks and bombing attacks uh, to a degree that we haven't even seen before. Why this escalation? Why is it happening right now? This is a big problem. And this has been going on now for four weeks, ladies and gentlemen. And still no calls for ceasefire, no definitive or categorical calls anyway from the U.S. leadership, from those who, from the onset, let's face it, they were backing this military action by Israel uh, on the Gaza Strip. And everybody thought, well, how bad could it be? How long could it go? here we are a month later we're still here we're still talking to you we're still reporting this and another hospital was uh, hit last night as well well over 30 medical facilities and hospitals have been uh, hit and uh, taken out of action in some cases pulverized by the israeli occupation forces or the idf as it's uh, widely known patrick henningson on today's news talk tnt radio when you can point me to an industry to a platform that reaches 250 million people a month, virtually nine out of 10 Americans. That's real, that's substantive, that's important. And that reach and that touch point and that daily reinforcement, it's an amazing place to be able to communicate messages. That's massive. To find out more, go to tntradio.live. Listen. Listen up! Now listen, we gotta talk. It's what we do best. This is today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back to the Mind Medicine Program. I'm Charles Coves. I'm with Victor Purton, the optimism guy. Victor, tell us about your background that included politics and then how that led to you establishing the Centre for Optimism. Well, I started like you. I started out life as a young lawyer and you know, in the old days when I became a young lawyer, you still wore a wig and gown in um, court. And I, you know, I was 23 and I looked 16. So um, I looked like I'd never tell a lie. So <laughs> I was reasonably successful, but I, I did law not to be a lawyer. I, I always wanted to go to politics. And uh, at the age of 28, I was elected to the parliament um, and 18 years raced by, Charles. It was... Was that 18 years? You 18 Gosh, years. Wow. And... Um, you know, it was the early days of the internet. Young people listening to this program, of course, can't even imagine a time without the internet. But there we were stumbling through, experimenting with broadbanding the, the state assets, the police stations, the schools. Um, we were the first jurisdiction in the world to do free public access for the internet in public libraries. Um, I had the, the world's fifth um, website for a politician. I followed Teddy Kennedy by about half an hour. Um, wow. and I, wow. I, you, they taught me how to do the coding myself. Um, you have to be really old to remember coding the internet. Um, and you know, I, I hosted the, the World Bank's first moderated conversation. Um, so 
very interesting, exciting times. But I'd grown up in a, in a politics that was much more positive. You know, we were talking about it earlier. Um, but for me, you know, Dick Hamer, who was a premier in the state of Victoria in the 1970s, was the standout. You know, the world's first environment protection authority. Um, you know, the creation of, of parks to protect waterways. Um, he called Victoria the garden state. And when you think now, nearly 50 years later, you know, one of the solutions to climate change and our ability to adapt is canopy, gardens, water features. Um, so for me, he taught me, you know, you can shout at people in question time. You can be aggressive in a press conference. But when you go back in, you are courteous, you are kind. You'll have a cup of coffee or a tea with the person you've been arguing with in public. And and, and that, in fact, led to, to the journey that, that got me here, because after I retired from politics, you know, I found it just wasn't me anymore. It had become too negative. Um, the, the sort of people who'd gone into politics were now reluctant to go into politics. And, and a couple of years after I retired, it was the Labor Premier, a person we'd spat at each other across the table, you know, when men shouted at each other, you know, those flecks of spat that, that go. And, you know, he asked me to apply for to be the Victorian Commissioner to the Americas. That, that was Steve Brax, wasn't it? No, that was John Brumby. John Brumby, okay. Although yeah. Steve Brax was funny because, of course, in those early days of the internet, like you, Charles, I had um, the first talk show on Optus Television. Wow. Um, okay. and, and Steve Brax told me and still reminds me that I was the first person to ever interview him on television. Uh, but it was Brumby. And um, so I became Commissioner of the Americas and, you know, it was a dream job, you know, headquartered in San Francisco, an office in New York and Chicago. We opened in Washington and Santiago. And the job was to promote the vision of Australia to Americans, north and south, for foreign direct investment um, and for exports. And what made my job easy, Charles, was that American stereotype that you've experienced of Australians as relentless optimists. That the chairman of Caterpillar said to me, you Aussies remind me of the Americans of 100 years ago. Um, I had to go and visit Eli Lilly to have talks about more human trials in the medical field in Australia. Um, the, the catering manager for the president's suite was so excited. She baked lamingtons and party pies in honour of the Australian coming to Indianapolis. And, and so in the course of that job, I really got to understand how the rest of the world perceives Australia. And then after that, I worked for Joe Hockey and Tony Abbott, the Australian finance minister and the Australian prime minister, when we were the president of the G20, you know, the group of, of 20 most powerful economies. And again, at that super elite level of presidents, prime ministers, finance ministers, central bank governors, it was exactly the same. They trusted us as Aussies. Mm. And, you know, even those that we were fighting with publicly, you know, the Russians had blown up a plane over the Ukraine and the like. Nevertheless, in those closed doors, in those negotiations, it was that Aussie temperament they really liked. And so after finishing that, Charles, I came back to Melbourne and I was astonished by the negativity of language. Now, I've mm. changed. I've lived That's in That's a very Silicon important Dome. point, the negativity of language. But negativity. Keep going. Yeah. And, and you can see it almost every second or conversation that a person has. 
an Aussie will say, g'day, how are you? Or hello, how are you? And what's the average response, Charles? Not bad. And not even bad. worse, not too bad. That's right. Not too bad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we never challenge it. It's this this negativity from the beginning of the conversation. And and you know, the the, the despising of leaders, you know, not just in government. I mean, every country mocks their political leaders. You know, it doesn't matter whether you're in China or North Korea or um, you know, Australia or the United States, everyone mocks their political leaders. But here it was an antipathy, you know, to people in business, to people running institutions, churches. And I, I couldn't get it. You know, having lived abroad and seen the admiration for Australia that the rest of the world had, I couldn't work mm. it out. And that's, we started a project and you were very generous of being interviewed. And I saw the Victorian governor the other day, Margaret Gardner, and we interviewed her for a project called the Australian Leadership Project. And we interviewed 2,500 people over two years on what makes a good Australian leader. And almost uniformly, particularly the foreigners, um, they came to this view that what makes an Aussie leader rather than a global leader is egalitarianism, right? Mm -hmm. Aussie leaders talk to the cleaner in the same language that they talk to the chairman. Self-effacing humour, and you are the expert, you know, and in comedy and laughter. But, you know, that laughter, even at board meetings, Australians will tell jokes and laugh. And then no bullshit, mm. right? And, and particularly the Russians during um, the G20 made it quite clear to me that they liked the fact that we didn't mince around, you know, that we were very direct. But at the end of that project, Charles, I was still left bewildered as to the negativity. Why in a country that's got it so good, yep. so good, are people playing the victim? If I hear another politician say Aussies are doing it hard, I, I nearly throw myself across the table. You know, hard compared to whom? The Yemenis, the Gazans, the Ukrainians, you know, mm. uh, the Rohingya who've been kicked out of Burma. You know, we live in absolute paradise. So I was still left bewildered. And then I was lucky enough, Charles, to be on the final panel of the Global Integrity Summit. And it was three days of misery. You know, the end of conscience, the end of, of free speech, the end of everything. And I changed my speech to the case for optimism. And it electrified the room. And Helen Clark, who was then the head of the UND, United Nations Development Program, the former New Zealand Prime Minister, said, Victor, turn that into a book and I will endorse it. I did. She did. And, and that's the journey I've been Gosh, on. Gosh, wow. What a great. Years. Victor, that is just such a great. That is just such a great story that it was that sitting there for three days of negativity, bang, you shift there and suddenly you get the challenge to write a book because we all know how difficult it is to write a book. And then you go, wow, I'm going to become the optimism guy. So you've set up the Centre for Optimism. So what does the Centre for Optimism do? How, how do you commercialise this? Because you can't keep doing it for nothing. Well, we're not heavily commercialised yet. So if any of your listeners are, are potentially good sponsors, we can always do uh, with more sponsorship. Um, so essentially what we do are two things. One is research. And in fact, tomorrow, Charles, we're releasing our latest research on what Australians think about how you would measure optimism in Australia. 
Okay. Yep. Um, so we do research. We've asked 40,000 people, Charles, what makes them optimistic. And in your introduction, you were spot on in talking about everyone's uniqueness. Uh, there's a professor of molecular psychiatry at Deakin University. Just imagine being a professor of molecular psychiatry. And she took 18 months to answer my question, what makes you optimistic? And she said, optimism is the evidence of dreams not yet realized. Mm. And, and you think about that, everyone's got different dreams from different circumstances. So we do lots and lots of research and every day, I'm asking new people and more people, what makes you optimistic? From the Prime Minister of Papua New Guinea, and God, you need to be an optimist to be in that job. Mm. The President of Taiwan, through to women digging ditches in, in India. And then the second thing we do is we transmit those habits, the little habits you can take to make yourself more optimistic. Now, we're in Australia, and, and last week there was a major breakdown on one of the tele telephone networks, and uh, half of Australians did not have their mobile phones working. And I was walking to, to address a meeting in Canberra, and there was this bloke smoking by outside an office, and I started talking to him, and he said, um, he said, oh, God, our office is different today. Everyone's talking. I said, oh, you must be an opera subscriber. He said, yes. And then as I walked down the street, I could see half of the people were making eye contact with me and smiling, and the other half was still on their screens. It was one of the best experiments I've ever seen. I don't know if you ever read Ian e. Forster's book from the 1920s, When the Machine Stops, but it no. reminded me of When the Machine Stops, you know, what a benefit to the world it was to have the internet and telephones break down for half a day. So one of the things we teach, Charles, mm. is something quite simple. And, so, and so, that is, so again, habits for, or yes, habits for driving optimism. What were the words you said? No, being more infectiously and more magnetically optimistic. Go on, yep. And, and the first one is just smile and say hello to everyone you pass. It is so easy, but in this day and age, as you walk down the street, you'll see most people don't do it. They, they don't even make eye contact. And um, IAG, you know, the big Swiss insurance company, did a survey of Australians. 95% of Australians would like to be greeted by strangers. Now, then there was a big lie in the statistics because 85% of them said they did it. And we know that's not true. But that's the number one intervention. The number mm. two intervention, which we've now done in hospitals, prison, schools, is to get rid of that Australian greeting, G'day, how are you? So if your listeners can try this for the next two days, G'day, hello, whatever you use, pause for about 10 seconds and say, you know, Charles, what's been the best thing in your day? Now, nice. G'day. What's been of, the best thing in your day? Yep. Yeah. Now, 50% of people will answer straight away. 30% of people will need a little prompter. You know, oh, I can't think of anything. And you'd say, oh, well, did you have a good cup of coffee or did you see the sunrise? And then 20% of people are actually having a bad day, right? And, and a problem shared is a problem halved. But that classic greeting of g'day, how are you? Not bad, not too bad. Because yes. I was something um, yesterday in, in one of the newspapers, a, a Spanish lady was mocking it. She was saying, 
why do you ask strangers how are you do I want mm. to tell a stranger you know my knee's got arthritis or you know, I've got too much cholesterol or the like um, and someone else was telling me how the Danes mock it because of course they have a simple greeting just something like tuck or the like you know they don't ask people how well, are so you so when greeting. they meet someone they don't ask any questions they just go hello yeah well you don't you don't ask an intimate question of a stranger yes whereas yes. what's been the best thing in your day is not confronting and it, it's become so much a part of me you know in the the supermarket the checkout young men and women um hit me with it before i asked them um i was at the governor's residence in 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 melbourne the other day and i'd been um teaching part of the american chamber of commerce global leaders course and so this is now two months after I've taught the course and all the graduates are there. Six of them individually came up. Victor, what's been the best thing in your day? <laughs> so if I can give your listeners one thing, a bit of mind medicine that combines optimism and passion, ask people about the best thing in your day. Now, I was doing an event in Hume Council, which is in the northern suburbs of Melbourne. And we went round the table. So instead of a normal introduction, name and position, it was name and what's been the best thing in your day. And one lady said, I drove my autistic son to school today. He was calm. I mean, we were almost all in tears that, you know, this notion of calmness in, you know, obviously a boy that is normally quite vigorous was for her something remarkable. So you'll find some things are quite little and intimate some things will be like i watched the news and you know i saw the hostages being released from gaza and the like and, and then some people will just share you know I'm, I'm sorry my grandfather died or whatever mm. and then you know the optimist the passionate person gives someone a hug and listens and i you know during you know you asked me early up about you know the gaza israel thing do you know the number of hugs I've given to my Jewish friends, you know, and yep. just let them talk about how they feel because so many of them have got relatives and, you know, a sense of should I be there or should I be here? Um, so sometimes it's just a matter of a hug and just listening to people. Okay. So that's, so they, so how to be optimistic? So smile and say, smile and say hello. And then. A new question, not g'day, how are you? So what's been the best day in your day? What's another, give me one more technique because I, I then want to go to the next question of, well, I'll come to that. Is there another, is there another simple yeah, habit? Yeah, my favourite one, and on the, first of, on the first of every change of season, I do an online broadcast called My Best Self. Mm -hmm. and, and it's a really, University of Vienna says it is the best technique for enhancing your optimism. So what you do is you take a, a glass of wine, a whiskey, a cup of tea, and you spend five minutes imagining yourself in five years' time, right? Yes. You take, you say, society's going to be okay, my health's going to be okay, the family's going to be okay. What do I want to be in five years' time? And, you know, in my case, a little bit thinner and I suppose I'll be a little bit less hair and, um, <laughs> you know, I'll still be asking uh, about optimism. And then you spend about 10 minutes writing uh, intimately about a day in your life. Of and what it's going to be like in five years. Yep. So, you know, today, you know, whatever today's date is, Sunday, in five years' time. And when I've done it with large groups of people, it's interesting how people want to share it. 
and then in sharing it, um, you know, there's almost a sort of a group of people around you. You know, oh, you were going to go on holidays to Vienna or um, you were going to be on holidays in New Zealand or you were going to open a new business or the like. And, you know, I mean, I'm not a, a big believer in, in the stuff about the secret and the manifestation, but there's a lot of evidence around the My Best Self practice from universities like the Vienna Medical School, Sheffield University and others that the practice of my best self, it, it affects your brain for months. You know, you're you're having lunch and you're thinking, God, wouldn't I rather be on Lake Como where I'm going to be in five years' time or a cruise through the Norwegian fjords or bumping my grandchildren, you know, on a, a ride at Luna Park. And yeah. so that one just, if, if people Google my best self and the Center for Optimism, They'll find it, and it's a really powerful technique. There's one more if I can share with you, Charles. I did this at a real estate conference in Brisbane earlier in the year. Uh, the other one that people really love is an exercise called My Optimism Superpower. And, my uh, Optimism Superpower, yep. Again, if people just Google My Optimism Superpower, they'll find a list of 150 types of optimism that I've recorded. Mm. And all you need to do is sit down and pick one and say, how does that manifest in my life? What Beautiful. is my optimism superpower? You know, am I like Charles Covest, a passionate optimist? Or am I like Victor, a radical optimist? Am I a woman determined to change the world? I could be a Pollyanna optimist. That's beautiful. All right, we've got to go to a break. My optimistic superpower. So where do people find that on the optimism? If they just Google it, Centre for Optimism, Optimism Superpower. Beautiful. Well, all right, we've got to go for a break. I'm with Victor Power, that optimism guy. I'm Charles Covest. This is the Mind Medicine Program, and we'll be back with you after these messages. Give me a minute with TNT Radio's Steve Malsberg. With Joe Biden behind in just about every presidential poll, the strategy of the left seems to be to go after Donald Trump even harder than they've been doing for the past eight years, if that's even possible. And on the media side, Joe Scarborough, whose brother-in-law works in the Biden administration, seems to be leading the charge. He will do, he will get away with, he will imprison, he will execute whoever he's allowed to imprison execute, uh, 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 drive from the country. Uh, just look at his past. And as unhinged as that was, it's nothing compared to what New York Democrat Congressman Dan Golden said the other day. It is just uh, uh, unquestionable at this point that that man cannot see public office again. He is not only unfit, he is destructive to our democracy, uh, and he has to be uh, he has to be eliminated. Now, after receiving some well-deserved criticism, Goldman apologized, said he didn't mean to use that word, eliminated, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. This is all the left has left. So watch for more of the same. Thanks for giving me a minute. I'm Steve Ballsberg. Catch my show Monday to Friday, 9 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on TNT Radio Vision. Whatever happens to good, it's a word that gets thrown around a lot, and it's become our automatic answer to so much. Hey, how's things? Good. Your mum, your weekend? Good, good. Is good even that good anymore? At the Salvos, we believe good deserves better. Let's reclaim its true meaning. To us, good has always been about making a difference, and good never picks or chooses who it helps. Isn't it time we all remember what good really means?
You're listening to Mind Medicine. Mind Medicine. Lighting the fuse for freedom. TNT Radio. Welcome back to the show. My guest is Victor Purton, Chief Optimism Officer of the Centre for Optimism. And we've been talking about techniques for maintaining your or building your optimism. We would finish with the searching my optimism superpower. There's 150 different ways to exhibit it. So go and check that out. Now, Victor, what is the link between wealthy people being optimistic and poor people being optimistic? And my second question is, what's the link between optimism and health? Well, those two questions. They are two huge topics, but they come together in a study by uh, Harvard University, Boston University, and the American military, which was published in 2018. And it was a multi-decade, hundreds of thousands of people study. And it was to look at healthy longevity, living to 85 in good physical and mental health. And when they started the study, they assumed it would be genetics or geography, wealth or income, but they were confounded when the result was the trait of optimism. And and in fact, they couldn't work out the mechanism. And so the American Heart Association put together a scientific panel, which then did a two-year further study, again, with huge databases. They also concluded um, that optimism was the key trait in determining healthy longevity. They found it was the key trait Um, protecting you against heart disease, and obviously for the cardiologists, the key predictor of recovery. So too for cancer, and in the case of dementia, it is the trait that slows down the onset. So optimism and health are very closely combined, and there's a whole range of reasons. And and what about, is there more optimism among wealthy people than poor people because i you know my parents were refugees like your parents to this country and you know my dad always said that well and i certainly found this i knew plenty of hungarians in melbourne who had no money who were relentlessly happy so my question is have there been has there been research done on that 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 wealthy are more optimistic or the poor are more optimistic There's some brilliant research by Professor Graham from the Brookings Institute looking at black populations in America, looking at um, Aboriginal or Indian communities in South America. And typically it is the poorer populations, it's the migrants, it's the refugees who are more optimistic than the native born population. And if you look at Australia, Um, Every migrant, every refugee who comes here lifts our optimism ratio. And and the University of Melbourne Mm. did a study, and um, I think they were funded by people who were hoping to get the opposite result, um, because obviously, you know, there are charitable organisations who want to get government money to run mental health programs. They found that 90% of migrant kids were optimistic for their future life, 85% optimistic for a great career compared to 55% of kids born in Australia. So, so, so poverty and, and, and the like. And, and really, um, there's a a new prime minister, a new president of, um, Singapore, 
um, Tharman, and I got to know him during the G20. Last year, he made a speech where he said that the biggest public policy issue in the world is the collapse of optimism in the rich world, in the developed world. Wow. Just say that again. That's, but the that's... biggest public policy issue in the world is the collapse of optimism in the developed world. Gosh. And, and Gosh. for those of you um, who are Bruce Springsteen um, fans, and I know you can sing um, mm. as well as Bruce. Uh, Bruce um, summed up, in fact, what Tharman had said and said, I think what you need at this moment is a kind of fighting optimism. Yes. And yes. those of your listeners and, and viewers who watched the coronation of King Charles might remember that there was a woman who carried the sword. And, and yes. a, a, a tall, strong woman in a blue gown. And her name is Penny Mordant. And she's Lord President of the Privy Council. And, and she said this. So she, she's a right-wing politician. But she said the fault line in politics at the moment is not between left and right, but between optimists and pessimists. We need optimists for the next tough shift. And if you look at the news, you know, what's happening in America and, and England and elsewhere, you know, it's, it's, it's this news broadcasting that brings every bit of misery from the world into our lounge rooms and it even interrupts, you know, the jovial programs we like to watch and the like. And, and there is, I almost think there's a conspiracy to, to make us feel miserable. Um, yes, that's, that's true. Be because more confident. And your program, mm. your radio station is about freedom. It's in fear that you can take away people's freedoms. And I think the most important thing we can do is, as fighters for freedom is to make people feel confident in themselves and confident in their communities not fighting each other with a scarcity mentality. You know, and you were talking about energy policy earlier. It confounds me that in a country as wealthy as Australia, we are now talking about energy blackouts during hot weather days in summer, and, and that we are talking um, food shortages and water shortages. This should be a country of abundance, not scarcity. And the only thing that's holding us back is a lack of confidence, a lack of passion, and a lack of ambition. And and that lack of confidence and that lack of ambition and that pessimism then enables government to control us. That's the and issue. You that... saw that during COVID. I mean, you mm. know, I certainly, you know, accept that we needed to have some restrictions on what we could do, and I wore a mask. But the notion that you would lock people up in their homes that you would have police, you know, almost, you know, interfering with children walking their dogs on the street. Um, it, it was just madness. And, and, and Victoria, which was the most lockdown state in Australia, ended up actually having a very high death rate. Yes, it did. And, you know, and it didn't. And, and let's talk about this question that, that of differing views around the COVID response. And I, but I want to make it bigger. I want to deal with, we're dealing with, with Israel and Gaza, we're dealing with, I, I listen to experts, I moderate global meetings each week. We're listening to experts who say that China is the number one enemy. I'm getting other views that America is the number one enemy, you know, from well-informed people. So here's my question. 
Victor, in your journey, you've dealt with politicians on both all sides of the fence. You know, as you say, optimists and pessimists, or right versus left versus green. What's your technique for handling? You know, you mentioned Dick Hamer, former Premier of Victoria. You know, in terms of at really attacking each other publicly on differing points of view, but privately getting along with each other. Now, I think we need to learn some new techniques to be. Let's get over this divide because we're we're learning to hate each other for different opinions. Give us some clues on how to handle this challenge. Um, well, Hamer was a gentleman. You know, I know it's an archaic term, um, but a gentleman. You know, a, a professional. He could attack someone in a in a debate, and I think the Dalai Lama talks about that. Um, Norman Vincent Peale, who wrote The Power of Positive Thinking. So never argue with people unless they're negative and wrong and then correct, you know, what they're wrong on. So it, it, it's about respect. And, and, you know, I won't name the country, but there was a particular antagonism between Australia and another country during the G20. And, and I went up to the finance minister with a bottle of Heathcote Red. And uh, I said, Minister, can I pour you a glass of wine? He said, thank you, Victor. And... Hmm. Uh, I said, and, and I don't use this question anymore, you know, um, seven, uh, nearly 10 years of experience. I said, and how are things, Minister? And he then told me about sanctions and all the things that are going wrong. And Charles, after that, I said, well, you must drink this red wine, Minister. It's very, very good. <laughs> now, take it forward six months. You know, the G20, you have to get unanimous decision making. Yep. And, and and this minister, you know, we were talking, talking with his deputy, and he came up and he said, I trust the Australians. We're going to go with them. Now, I won't say it was that glass of wine or, or the bottle of Heathcote Shiraz, but it's just respect. It, it's listening. Mm. It's being nice. It's being friendly. It's making that extra phone call. It's making time to have a cup of coffee. Now, we're all busy people. But I would actually go back to that old concept of Hamer and being a gentleman, mm. you know, it's, or a gentle lady and, yeah. and just treating people. Now, these days it's called diversity and inclusion and all sorts of things. But in the end, you know, I mean, I grew up in an all-female household, you know, e equal opportunity, you know, is was just normal. You know, women in power was just normal. It doesn't need words like diversity and inclusion. It means respect and friendliness and niceness. Can I share a funny thing with you, Charles? Yeah, please. I went to an engineering company the other day to give a speech. And when I got to the door, I had to put my, vision, my face into the iPad and register. And then it was an engineering company. So there was a very quick um, induction. And the first part of the induction was don't, walking down the corridor, don't read or write emails or messages. And okay. <laughs> uh, I wrote to the head of safety and I said, could you add the words and smile and say hello to everyone? So I think in this day and age where people are trying to demonise each other, you know, when you think of the American Democratic Party and Republican Party, over 100 years they have been so similar. You know, they both run trillion-dollar deficits. They both build huge numbers of, of nuclear weapons and, you know, have millions of soldiers. There's very little difference. But to watch the television today 
And to see this almost annual shutdown of government. Yes. You know, the big problem in America is, is they've been pushed into a lack of gentlemanliness and, and this extraordinary demonization of the other side. And if we can stop that happening in Australia, I think you and I will have done a very good job, Charles. Yes, I, I learned from my wife, Julie, to l learn uh, this technique of for saying, why do you say that, Victor? Or yeah. tell me why you believe that, rather than going, you're wrong. And all of us, I, you know, what you're saying is this being a gentleman is is really a genuine desire to explore, you know, why, what makes you think that? And I really urge all of us, you know, we're, we, you know, you can't be black and white. Life is so complicated, just like a golf swing when I stand in my editorial. You know, the, playing golf is very complicated, but working out all the elements of the Israeli, con Gaza, Iranian dramas, yeah. this is super complicated. And then you and I had a conversation around the Ukraine, Ukraine, Russia. Suddenly everybody, everybody became an expert on Ukraine. And what we as we get older we realize gosh the the more we know the less we know and and let let go of this idea somehow we have to come to this space and you come to mind medicine um the wonderful wonderful anthony Demello, a wonderful philosopher a jesuit priest from india you know and he said just except that you're an idiot. Each one of us is an idiot. We know a tiny little amount and stop trying to impress people that you know a lot of stuff. And when we let go of that desire to sort of prove that we know lots, then it becomes easier to build this relationship. What do you think? You've got one minute. I think it's wisdom. I don't think it's stupidity. It's wisdom. It's in wisdom you understand that there are a lot of wise people around you. Um, and, you know, sometimes people talk about the ageing crisis or the aged crisis, and I say we've never had as much wisdom in the world as we've got today. Mm. We've got to harness it through optimism and passion, uh, both of which are the real mind medicine. Yes, this this accessing wisdom. I'm a I'm a, on the board of the Kids Foundation, a wonderful charity, and, Victor, we've been having and running programs to take kindergarten children to meet the wise in their community to take them into aged care facilities and to listen to these wise people so if we need that wisdom i think what we need is for grandchildren to come and and spend time with their grandparents because they have wisdom because the parents are too busy working last question the website for center for optimism the center for optimism.com you can spell it american or australian center foroptimism.com. Beautiful. And your book is The How and Why of Optimism, available on that website? Amazon. Amazon's the best thing. If people just go to Amazon, Optimism, The, the How and Why, and it's available all around the world and, and selling very well. I'm very happy with the sales. And as you know, I God uh, on one day sent me a copy of your book at a bus stop. So passionate <laughs> people produce remains one of my gospels too, Charles. Thank you very much, Victor. Thank you so much for joining with us. Your message is so important. The, the techniques that you've shared with us, if any of you want those techniques, go to the website. Um, you can join. You can support the Centre for Optimism. You can sponsor the Centre for Optimism. Victor Purton, thanks for joining us. 
Everybody, thanks for watching. Thanks for listening there that you've got that choice of watching or listening. We'll be back with you next Sunday at 7 p.m. Melbourne time, 6 p.m. Gold Coast time. Have a wonderful week full of optimism and passion. Bye for now.